Our guest today is Michelle Frame, president and founder of Victus Airs, a boutique food product development lab whose specialty is the confectionery industry. Michelle and her team collaborate with candy companies and turn their inventions into commercial ready products. The name Victus Airs derives from the Latin, which means food and science or skill, which they have in abundance. In our conversation today, we touch on the launch of the new Institute of Confectionery Excellence, where Michelle and her team provide hands-on training in the candy and confectionery industry. Their courses focus on the science, the process, and the ingredient functionality so that technicians and food scientists can troubleshoot faster and manufacture better products. She walks us through candy-making processes, including panning, tempering chocolate, and forming gummies. You might not think of gummy candy as being cutting-edge technology, but Michelle's team is creating the next generation of supplements and prescription drug delivery. This means putting crucial medicines into gummy form for those at-risk people who struggle with swallowing pills such as children and elderly. Don't listen to this podcast hungry because by the end, you'll be craving your favorite candy. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. We haven't talked in a long time, so this should be fun. It has been a while, Maureen. It has been, yes. I know, but we've known each other for many, many years. Many so. years, yes. The most recent thing that I have, um, I saw you put out there was your new, the Institute of Confectionery Excellence. Yes. So that's your new baby. That's the new baby. We're really excited about it. We've been working on it for quite some time. Uh, we looked at it before the pandemic. And of course, when that hit, nobody was going to be traveling. So so we just let it set and kept mulling over what it should actually be, which was great because it gave us some time to do some iterations just in-house on what we wanted. So the Institute for Confectionery Excellence is uh, is a really dynamic space within within the same building that we have our lab in and it's all taught all and it is all taught by Victus Air scientist managers who have production experience just like I do so when we're doing the training classes these really are um, employee training so this isn't these aren't classes to make fun things for your kid's birthday party. This isn't a, hey, let's drink wine and do art. This is some pretty hardcore science on some of it, some of the chemistry and such. Uh, but really, it's a whole lot about application. Do you know how to make benchtop gummies in a way that, A, can be made for, for everybody to taste that needs to, but also so that you can troubleshoot in the plant? So many operators in a candy factory may have been there for 20, 30 years, and they've never actually touched, tasted, looked at corn syrup or tapioca syrup or any of the other things. Uh, they don't understand gelling agents. They know that this stuff is made of gelatin and that goes in that tank here and this stuff is made with pectin and something else happens but they don't understand the chemistry behind it. And, and it's not even just chemistry in terms of, you know, chemical structures and stuff, because not everybody needs to know all of that. But it is understanding that these react differently, uh, depending on how they're mixed with other ingredients or even how they're mixed with water. So when we take the operators out of the plant, bring them into our, our classroom space and explain what, uh, What's actually going on? Uh, 
and how corn syrup behaves when it's warm versus when it's cold versus how it plays differently depending on what the DE is. Now, scientists, we explain what dextrose equivalents are uh, and that it has to do with the molecule size and how many small mono and disaccharides you have in the syrup versus how many big branchy things. But for, you know, operators or those in business roles, such as marketing and, and purchasing and such, what they need to understand is that these simply are very different, that a 42 DE syrup is different than a 62 DE syrup. And if those are corn syrups, those behave differently than a 40 or 60 DE tapioca syrup. And understanding that and how that can affect how it cooks, how it flows in a pipe, how it's going to deposit, how it's going to cure into a gummy or chew or whatever you're making is all really key. And once you start understanding that, you can troubleshoot in your plant so much faster. So these classes really have an effect two ways. One is on immediate ROI. You now have operators that can troubleshoot in your plant, that can see when something's going awry and they can stop it before it actually causes major issues. But it's also about retention. Employee retention obviously is critical at any time. Right now, I was just speaking to somebody uh, at uh, Illinois Manufacturing Association, and she stated that the cost to replace somebody that is being paid $40,000 is $20,000. So you're between 45 and 50% cost of the salary to replace that role. So how do you retain employees? How do you make sure that they're feeling valued, that they feel like they've understood their job, they're good at it, they feel like they're making an impact to the business and to what you're making is, is through training and feeling like they really understand their role is that that space on the line is theirs and they get it. So they're not just pushing a start button or a stop button and waiting for all, you know everything else to happen. And even as we go to AI, eventually, as some of these things will switch to, if you don't understand how the system works from a food ingredient standpoint, we're going to have a whole lot of messes. So having operators that truly understand it, having maintenance people that really understand it, having all these other pieces are key in order to really have a company that is stable and functional and, and set for long-term growth. Okay. Do you ever have anybody push back and say, well, if I have these people learn all this, they're going to ask for more money or they're going to leave me and go take this technology somewhere else? You know, we're not seeing that at all. And we're seeing companies actually come in and say, hey, can we utilize you to help us build our own in-house training? Not that we're going to do it in-house, but put it into the HR system so that we have a set amount of, of learning or classes that we can send folks to. So they're actually building us into their HR training budgets uh, because that's, that's really key. You know, this isn't... Um, and I hear folks say that, I, I don't agree, but they'll say that when going to conference and stuff, they might meet other folks. Yep, they might. And if it's that's their life path to go someplace else, um, okay. But the reality is the people that stay are the ones that get set places, that get training, because mm -hmm. now they have a personal stake in making their company better, safer, more active, understanding their stuff. Those are the ones that don't want to go anywhere. Where you have folks deciding to leave is if they're disconnected. If they're just coming in, 
doing whatever it is they do with their hands and not having to think about anything, not having any personal connection to how to make the product that they're making, those are the ones that leave. Okay. Ones that stay are the ones that think my company actually invests in me and that's cool. Do you think these are good for new employees or existing employees? It's actually good across the board. And that's why we have a number of different classes. So we have Gummy Fundamentals, which is really the basics. It's let's look and poke at syrups and sugar. Let's really play with pectin and gelatin and such. And what's unique about that is that over 70% of the class is, is at the bench top. We are making stuff. So this isn't just theoretical at the table. There's some of that. So we can review what, what some of those characteristics are and how they interact with each other. But then we go in the lab and we make stuff. Mm -hmm. And we make stuff not only that works, but we purposely make stuff that doesn't work. And that's a unique piece that most training classes don't have. They say, here's how to make something. Here's how to make it right. So let's make it right. That's great, but then you take that home and it goes completely flat and doesn't work and you're stuck going, okay, I got nothing. I did. I thought I did everything right and I didn't, so now what? We're teaching you what happens if you have too much sugar in something versus too much syrup versus too much flavor, like whatever. What are these things that can go awry? And let's look at those and see what happens. Let's see what happens when you pre-gel pectin too fast. Uh, and now you have a big clumpy mess that can get stuck in the pipes. If it gets stuck in your funnel and it's a hand funnel and you have to clean that out, you suddenly remember that and you know, I don't want that happening in pipes. That'll be a really big mess I'm going to have to clean out. And those are key pieces that, that you can learn as an operator that's new and as an operator or somebody that's been there a while. Same thing for food scientists. There's always stuff that you can learn. We've been doing this a long time. I have over 30 some years of experience. So I've had, you know, all sorts of messes that I've had to clean up. My scientists have as well. So the stories we tell help implement that and help that training. So whether you're young, you're older, and, and you just want to fill in some of those blanks that you didn't get before, you knew, you know, pieces and parts, but not everything. This helps all that. And then it also helps from that business side. Again, we try to keep the, the classroom portion short enough and very, very applicable to what you're learning on the bench so that when you go back and you're in purchasing, you understand where you might be able to substitute ingredients and where you really can't without the help of R&D. Marketing, sales, it can help you understand, hey, you know what? I'm now understanding these are pretty similar pieces of equipment that we're using. I wonder if we could make something else close close to this. Or what would I need to do if I had this equipment and I wanted to make marshmallow? So it helps drive some questions that can lead to new products for a company. So all of these roles, whether in the plant, at scientists or technical level, or in business roles, can all actually get a lot out of each of these classes. Now, if you had somebody who really wanted to launch their own little candy company, they're just dying to do it and they think they have some some new idea it's worked in the kitchen and their friends all love it would this be a good avenue for them to go down it actually is yes because we talk about all the tools that you need we explain how to use a refractometer we explain what you can do you know bench top level works just great for small small manufacturing small business uh, and then we also go into the bigger equipment what is it? Who are those contacts that you need? So if you're doing it at tabletop, 
uh, by hand. So you can do it, you know, truly by hand, or if you're at Benchtop and you want a small piece of equipment that, uh, that you push a button or pull a handle to do, but you make a lot more at one time. We have equipment folks for all of those. So we're sharing that information, making sure that you have access to uh, distributors that you might need that can get you some of the ingredients that you might want. We also talk about if you're small enough, you know, you can go to Costco and get get certain ingredients, but how you want to be able to track those. So you don't want to just go to any random grocery store. You want to make sure you're going to some place where you can have a lot number, you know where you're getting this material from, so you could trace it back if you needed to. And from that, you're learning immediately to your point of somebody new or teaching, you know, let's make sure we understand what lot codes are. Let's make sure that we can trace this stuff. We, we discuss all that type of thing in there. So it's really for a range of folks in a way that, that connect to, to what their job is and, and what's valuable to them. That's something I never thought about tracking your lot code, you know, so, you know, <laughs> well, it didn't work. So we go find out what, where it came from, or it could be contaminated as you that's the big issue, right? So if, if you're just, you know, making this for your friends, then this probably isn't the right right space for you, right? It's it's a commitment to to pay the, the price for it, right? Uh, so if you're just making it for your friends, there's other things you can look at YouTube and, you know, and TikTok and stuff and find things. But if you're looking to start in some manufacturing, if you want to sell product, yes, you have to be able to trace your products, all your ingredients back a step. And then understand where they're going forward a step. Now, you won't understand it if you're selling at a farmer's market, and, and that's okay. You know, there's rules around farmer's markets that are fine. But if you're trying to get into your local Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods, if you live near something like that, they're going to need you to still be able to hit these points of food safety, even though you're small. You've got to have this stuff in place. Okay. Now... You know, everybody wants to do their DIY, all kinds of food. You see, everybody wants to copycat recipes. You see it all over Pinterest, but you never seem to see candy. I mean, yeah, we see fudge, we see, you know, peanut brittle and things, but no one's trying to do a Snickers bar or, you know, a Milky Way or M&Ms. I'm not going to try to make M&Ms. I'll just go buy them. I didn't make a Hershey kiss. So why is it, why is candy different? Why is it so hard? Candy is hard because the chemistry is extremely difficult. So although we have warm feelings about grandma making stuff, you know, in the kitchen, uh, grandma had big, heavy pots. So those transferred heat very differently than what we may be using today. So folks may try to do something and it burns. So we use really good copper core uh, pans and induction burners and such so that we can control the heat really, really well. The other thing is that there's tools. So in baking, you know, you bake to a certain temperature, right? And in candy making, if you read a recipe, it'll say to cook to a temperature, which is lovely and sort of pertains to being true. But the reality is if it's raining outside, that temperature probably needs to change. Uh, if you live up in the mountains or in the high desert, you have to cook differently than if you're in the Everglades of Florida. And when you read recipes, they don't account for any of that. So when we teach you how to cook to solids and tell you to use a refractometer to do that and teach you how to use that, that small piece of equipment or a tool, now you can be anywhere and you can adjust accordingly 
because if you're up in the high mountains, you might still need to back down your salad some because you're going to evaporate a lot more just because it's hot. So as you're trying to deposit or make shapes with your gummy or whatever material you're doing, you're going to have a different experience anyway with the environment. But environment is really, really critical when it comes to candy. So what is your humidity? What's the barometric pressure? What's the temperature in the space you're you're in can absolutely ruin a batch so fast. And I think there's folks that that understand their grandma's recipe and they can make that. Uh, but otherwise, when folks try to match some of the candy, it just doesn't work for where they are. And it has to do with how sensitive candy is to very, very small changes in temperature. So do you think candy is more of an art or a science? It's a science. Uh, the thing is... It's a science that has a hundred variables. So if you can control all those, great, you can make a lot of product. If you can't, that's when you have to bring it into that art form where you're actually sensing it. I was just working with one of my R&D managers yesterday and we were, we were panning nuts, chocolate coating nuts. And she had tried it last week a couple of times and it just was not working for her. So I said, oh, okay, I'm going to do it with you. Uh, and I, because I'm guessing your brain is getting in the way. And that's what it was. She was like, I feel like I have to add something. I need to do something. I'm like, exactly right. But if we think of it instead in a Zen type moment and say, I'm going to listen to the candy, we can listen to it roll. And it rolls much softer when the chocolate is warm and, and malleable. And as that chocolate hardens, it gets harder and it sounds like rocks in a pan. Listen for that. That's going to tell you more than looking at it is going to. So is that art or science? Well, in theory, it's it's science because it has to do with, with how crystallization is happening. But can you measure crystallization while, while coating something with chocolate? You can't. There, there's not a method to do that. So instead, that's when it becomes that art because we just don't have the tools to measure all those variables especially in real time. So that's when we have to pull in that art or that sensing and using all your senses to just listen, feel for it. There's things that you know are more about smell uh, that we're looking at. So across the board, you know, we, there is science there, but that science, that, that methodology doesn't exist in a way that works in real time, which means you have to get what we say is it's, it's neither, it's actually skill or it's both. And therefore, it's skill. So art or science, it's skills. So I want you to back up a little bit. For people who are listening and don't know, tell us what panning is. Absolutely. So panning, you may have seen uh, in commercials. And you'll see a small rotating bowl. It looks sort of like a cement mixer, but much smaller. And usually it'll show a chef drizzling some chocolate in there. And that's lovely. When you take that bowl and you now blow it up, and so it is in our labs, we either have 16 inch or 24 inch because that's what we train on. But in a plant, you might have a 36 to 48 inch pan. So if you think one of those pans being four feet in diameter, and then that room probably has 50 of those pans standing next to each other. And then you have uh, an air system that comes in overhead in a big tube. And there's tubes from that air that drop down into each pan. So you can control cool air going in and out or warm air going in and out, depending on what you're panning. So that panning process is this bowl just spinning. 
And by having the bowl spin, you can put centers in or whatever you're coating. And that can be anything from things like raisins and almonds are the most common. But we can also do jelly bean centers or various other stuff, M&M centers, right? So depending what type of panning we're doing, we put the centers in and they start rolling. And so what you have are individual pieces at the end that don't have any flat spot. They don't have a foot on them. They look beautiful in a, in a bowl for a bowl of candy and they're individual pieces. So it's not a bar. It's not a, you know, commitment to eating a Milky Way or anything like that. You can have a couple of chocolate covered almonds. If any of us can control eating yeah. two chocolate covered almonds. <laughs> <laughs> But, so that's what panning is when you see a bowl uh, or a package where, where you're reaching in and, and can pull out individual pieces that are coated in chocolate or that have that sugar shell crunch uh, or, or jelly bean type pieces, things like that. That's all using the panning process, which again is a big bowl that's on its side and is spinning in such a way that the product inside can tumble. How do they make them uniform? I don't, that's the part that gets me. They're just, if I think if I tumbled a bunch of things in there, we would come out with all different sizes. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a couple of tricks to that. One of them is the angle of the pan. So if you're finding that a number of your products are, are doing exactly that, the first thing to check is what angle is the pan at? Because the product shouldn't just tumble from top to bottom. It should actually move from front to back. So if you have the correct angle of your pan, those pieces will slightly move back each time as they're tumbling along. As they hit the back, they start tumbling forward. So it's a slower process forward back than it is from top to bottom, but it should be moving that way. The next piece then is how are you adding materials? If you, so most pans, like again, if you take a bowl and then kind of put a lip around it, so more like a, a a plant pot and so you have this slip around it that top piece or that front part is running slower than the back because it's so much bigger than than your back piece where that that back of that pan is or the bottom of the bowl which is uh it's just naturally it's smaller it's running at a, at a different pace per se when we look at physics okay so your product in the front that the candy that's in there is going to run slower than it is in back and big pieces are going to fall to the front. So if you start getting clumps, they are going to come forward. And if you get a lot of fines, like sugar fines, you put in too much sugar, that's going to roll to the back. And yes, you are going to have problems there. So how do we solve some of that? First, we make sure the equipment is set right again by angle. And then we look at how are we adding this material? If we add stuff too close to the front, we can actually cause, cause clumping because that candy isn't rolling as quickly. If we add some things to the back, like syrup, we can cause problems because we can make it all stick together. And then you get what we call a pizza stuck in the back of the pan. And that's really hard to get off. You have to use this big, ugly thing called a claw that people make in-house. They call it different things. That was just one of the first ones I heard. Like, you got to get the claw. And you have to get this big, ugly pizza thing off the back of your pan that's stuck on there really, really well. The next time, you don't put syrup all the way in the back. You know it's going to roll back there, but you don't do that. 
So similar types of things, depending on where you're putting syrups, you're, you want to put those, you know, more towards the middle, not in a stream right down the center, but you want to give those first couple of inches in front the first and the, and the last inches in back some space because the candy will move there properly. But because those are spinning at different rates or the candy is spinning at different rates, we want to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up to, to clump uh, or to have small fines that can get stuck in the back. And that's how you make sure that things stay stay uniform is how you apply uh, your materials, whether that's a syrup, whether it's dry sugar or whether it's chocolate. And it's some of what we train on, too, is here's how you add this in such a way that you're going to get very even pieces. So we teach it at ladling so that you can learn to do it by hand. And you're just using a, a truly a ladle, a small ladle, like a two ounce ladle is what we'll use to teach that mechanism. But then when you go into a plant, we'll talk to engineers and say, okay, here's how you can use a piccolo tube, which is just a tube with holes, with, with holes uh, drilled into it. So it looks like a flute or a piccolo. I don't know why they pick piccolo because piccolos are so much smaller than flutes. So it seems more like, you know, flute, but whatever. They didn't ask me to name things. So they call it a <laughs> so that's a, a drip method, method or a drizzle method. And then you can also spray chocolate on. And the unique thing about spraying on is that you can actually have your air on at the same time you spray that bed. Spraying works great if you have really small pieces like sunflower seeds where, you know, you drip on the tiniest bit too much and you get clumps really fast. So spraying helps you do that. But spraying also can cause a lot of issues. So unless you unless you know that spraying is really what you want to do, and a lot of big companies it is, but spray nozzles clog up easily. So they can help make the process go faster, but they can also cause a lot of issues. There can be a lot of overspray, so you lose a lot of chocolate that you just want to watch out for and make sure that it, it's meeting the needs. Otherwise, we recommend drizzle. That's for chocolate. For syrups, whether you're doing jelly beans or whether you're doing uh, sugar shell, we're looking at it a little bit differently because we don't want to spray because that can trigger crystallization. We want it to trigger on the bed. So we have to make sure that if we are spraying, it's in a contained system and we understand what our solids are and all those types of fleeces so that it, it hits the product and has time to spread before it's gonna start crystallizing. So balancing out all those pieces, we can teach by hand, and then we can talk about what it takes to do the engineering to do it at much higher levels. Okay, so you can coat it with chocolate and then coat it with a candy. You can, yes. And then you can make it shiny. Yes, yeah, so now you're kind of talking uh, peanut M&Ms, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or peanut butter M&Ms. Or peanut butter M&Ms, absolutely, or all those, the crispy ones, all of that. Yes, that's what we're talking about. We, we first do, we take those centers, we coat them with chocolate. Now we move them to a different set of pans because those pans are now coated in chocolate. So we move those, we let the chocolate set some so that more of that cocoa butter can crystallize and make a nice firm center again. And now those are our new centers. We put those in a clean pan and now we can put a sugar shell on them. And then yes, once that's properly crystallized, then we can polish them up or we first coat with white so that we have a nice underneath primer. And then we, we put color on the outside of that. So now you have a nice bright yellow or brown or green, red, all those colors. Now we let them set and then we polish them to a nice bright shiny finish. And you have a beautiful M&M type piece of whether it's peanut and peanut butter and crunchy and all those fabulous things that they do. Uh, that's how they're, that's how they're making them. So how long would it take like in a pilot plant setting? 
how long would it take to do all those steps? So in a pilot plant setting or the, the settings that we're doing, we're going to take the first day to do the chocolate panning. And that's going to take probably two hours, possibly three, depending on how much chocolate we want on. Then we're going to pull those out and we're going to let them rest. And, and really all it's doing is, again, just giving it more time for that cocoa butter to con- continue crystallizing. So when you first make a chocolate bar uh, or coat something with chocolate, that chocolate we say is tempered, but it's not all tempered. It's only about... of of that chocolate is tempered and it has more time. So you really just have the tempering seed in there. If you start tempering up to even five or 6%, your chocolate gets too thick and you can't mess with it. You can't play with it. So, so if you're molding bars or, or doing, um, molded, hollow chocolates, things like that, you have a low level of tempering with panning. We don't want that chocolate tempered at all because we need time for it to smooth. What that means then is you have a piece that seems hard, but just like nail polish or cement, it actually needs more time to cure, to set, whatever you want to call it. There's different words that different factories use, but the reality is it's just giving that cocoa butter time for that seed that you introduced to crystallize out in the right pattern so that it provides the stability and the bite and eating experience that we want. So if we, you know, if, if chocolate is, is done incorrectly, uh, we've all had it where the chocolate is just a little too melty and you barely touch it and it's melting all over your hand. Uh, or the other way where it's actually gotten old and it's like, why is my chocolate sort of chewy and it says it's real chocolate? That has more to do with how the cocoa butter is crystallized. So we want to make sure that's in the right form so that it melts at body temperature. And that's to whether you're melting chocolate or panning or whatever. So when it's setting, do you set it at room temperature or stick in the refrigerator? What do you do? So you want it cool, but not refrigerated. Chocolate doesn't like to be shocked. So chocolate's a bit of a prima donna, which is why if you see some things where it says compound coating or chocolate flavored coating, things like that, it's because they're using, um, they, they've taken out the cocoa butter, which is really the prima donna part of it, and replaced it with something like palm oil or such, which is, can be easier to play with because it's a little more uh, on the nose with what temperature it sets at. With cocoa butter, you want to gently cool it. So it wants to be in air-conditioned settings. So it's fine for it to go down to 65, potentially go down to 62 or 60, provided you bring it back up gently. You don't want to just shove it into a space that's 10 degrees cooler than your room. Uh, you want to make sure that it's that it's cool and and dry in the space. That's really what it wants. So in the case of panning with chocolate, because you have all these pan spinning, you are naturally creating heat in the room, right? There's just kinetic energy that's being built in the room. So heavy pan spinning create heat. Tumbling product creates heat. This is all just basic physics of whatever it is, it's going to do that. So if we cool that room down, and keep the room closer to 60 or 55. Now that helps the panning process go faster. Then when you take the product out, you leave it in that room. So you actually have a much bigger room or your pans are around the outside of the room and the center of the room is for storing it. So that way it's not getting shocked at all because what chocolate really doesn't like is to be shocked either going up in temperature or down in temperature. So they want it, it wants to just kind of hold its place. So we hold it in place in that room. So let's say we're, we're doing it at between 60, 65. We hold it in that place. Now, 
now the next day, 24 hours later, now it's had enough time. It usually takes between 48 and 72 hours for chocolate to truly crystallize to its final point. So if you really want to know what the snap of chocolate is going to be, you need to hold it longer. But for the panning process, we have enough of it crystallized at 24 hours that we can now put it in the next pan and now we can sugar shell it. Sugar shelling takes a long time, especially in a lab setting. In big manufacturing, you can do these enclosed systems in a much shorter time. But in a open atmosphere setting, if you don't have your humidity down between 20 and 25, it's going to take hours. It's going to take anywhere, depending on how much sugar shell you want, it can take anywhere from about 8 to 16 hours to sugar shell. Wow. Yes, because you're putting on a layer of sugar and then you're letting it tumble and smooth. And then that sugar, that water comes off of it and the sugar crystallizes. And you have to wait for it to do that because otherwise, when you get to layer 50 and there's a lot of layers, you're probably putting on 70 some layers. If those underneath layers aren't crystallized properly, you can start getting cracking. So you need to make sure your underneath layers are properly done. You need to make sure that your middle layers are, are holding a good foundation because you don't want to get to the end and suddenly have, you know, you're, you've made it a yellow or a red and there's hot spots of moisture underneath. And now you either get cracking or you get what we say is mottled colored, which almost looks like something is moldy because it'll be two or three different shades of the same, you know, the same color red. And it's because of the way the moisture is underneath it. So we really have to make sure that we are panning in such a way that we don't have so much dryness that we dust off the sugar because that causes other problems. So it needs to be dry enough, but not over dried. So you're creating systems or you're learning your skill so that you understand where that space is so that that product can be properly sugar shelled. Now it comes out again. It sits another 24 hours again, allowing more of that sugar to crystallize out completely, allow the moisture to come to equilibrium. And then finally, we, we will uh, polish it the, the final day. So day one, we're chocolate panning, and that's going to take two to three hours generally. Then the next day, we're going to sugar shell, and that's going to take minimally all day of eight hours, probably two days of that. And then finally, that following day. So like day five, we're polishing uh, and we can polish and glaze at that point. And now we can uh, let it set for a few hours, let the shellac set. So we need to let that set for about four hours and now we can package. Wow. So you are on a, depending on what sugar shell you want, what chocolate level you want, those types of things, you're somewhere in four or five days uh, is what you're going to do in a lab and in manufacturing settings where you have uh, manual panning going on. Wow. Now you know why we do not make M&Ms at home. And that is why you do not make M&Ms at home. And we haven't even started with, you know, getting that chocolate tempered and then trying to mold it into the shape of an M&M uh, because getting that, that lentil shape takes takes a piece of equipment that is two rollers that look kind of like egg cartons uh, that you have to hit the chocolate exactly right for. And those two rollers have to be perfectly aligned so that when that chocolate hits them, it creates what looks like bubble wrap of chocolate. And then it comes down underneath and falls out. And now you break off that netting around it, right? And, and so that you get a nice smooth piece, but it's coming off looking like chocolate bubble wrap. 
and if those rollers aren't aligned, you get something that looks like a really misshapen, undefined thing uh, and that you can't sugar shell because you have weird edges on it. So getting that to work correctly is a whole nother skill piece that, that we talk about. Same thing with jelly bean centers. If you're not making those correctly, you put your jelly bean centers in a pan and you have a mess because they will clump together. They won't hold their integrity, so they'll fall flat. We can even see the same things with something like raisins. If they have too much moisture in them, we can get those to mess up with us. And so that we try to hit them with chocolate and they flex. And when it flexes, it breaks off all the chocolate. And then they just want to stick to each other and be clumpy and messy and all sorts of things can go awry. Wow. So whether it's an <laughs> agricultural product or whether it's a plant, base center. Uh, there's issues that can go right with those. So we need to make sure our centers are really defined properly too. You have to really be brave to make kids. <laughs> well, you know, those little poppet things the kids play with. Yes. People have been taking those and filling them with yogurt, putting them in the freezer and giving them to the kids. They can pop them out and eat the frozen yogurt. So it's not candy, but that's how they're using it. <laughs> That's an awesome, awesome thing to do. Yes. And good way to get, get kids eating yogurt. So fabulous. You know, candy, like so many things, is, is about having fun, right? So when we can do that with other things too, we're all for it. We absolutely believe that candy has a place, but it's not as a meal replacement, right? Candy shouldn't even be a snack. And we say that in the candy industry. We say, you know, it, it should be a treat. That's what it's there for. So yes, uh, fun snacks, yogurt and frozen yogurt and making it at home is fantastic. And we cheer you on. When we talk to schools, we say we eat our fruits and vegetables first. As candy scientists, we eat our fruits and vegetables first. Then we get to have candy. And yes, we get to eat quite a bit. Also, we spit it out when we're tasting a lot of things. Oh, yeah. So because it can be a lot of calories very quickly. So we use spit cups regularly. Uh, so there's things that we do to make sure we're not getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of calories from candy because nobody should be doing that. The reality is candy, if, if controlled and portioned properly, can add to a really fun day. It can help create the celebration with family or friends or just by yourself enjoying your own pieces of candy, whether that's peanut M&Ms or a piece of chocolate or a small bag of gummies, whatever that is. It allows you to do that and enjoy it. But we don't want it to be a meal replacer or a snack. We want it to be truly a treat to be enjoyed and, and treasured. Oh, yeah. And I, I treasure my candy. Now, I've, I have met many people that make candy at home, meaning chocolate covered, cherries, chocolate covered. And they talk about tempering chocolate. And... I get this really glazed over look when they start trying to describe it because I have no idea what they're talking about. So tell us what tempering is and tell me both like, you know, the industry one and the one at home. Give me those. Absolutely. So from the industry standard, we're saying that chocolate is polymorphic and there's six different crystals that the cocoa butter can do because that's really what we're talking about is the cocoa butter itself uh, and what all these different crystal sizes are and what temperatures they melt at and all sorts of things. 
that really just don't matter at home. They matter if, you know, if you're making tank loads of, you know, 40,000 pound batches of chocolate, you better know and understand that. From the home standpoint, what we're talking about is that cocoa butter is so lovely. The reason we love chocolate is that it melts at body temperature, but that it's solid at room temperature. That's what we love about chocolate. So, Overall, if we know and understand that, right, that chocolate, it releases its flavor as it melts in your mouth, it melts at this perfect body temperature, that's what we want it to do. So if we just make some chocolate and we get some cocoa beans and we we roast them because we want to make sure they're safe, we can roast them darker so they have darker flavors, or we can just roast them enough to uh, be food safe, right? Because cocoa is, is coming from a tree. It's a fruit pod. Well, lots of things like fruit pods. So there's snakes, there's rats, there's all sorts of stuff in around cocoa trees, right? And we're talking in the jungle. So there's lots of things around there. So we want to make sure that we're not doing things like raw chocolate or eating raw chocolate. It's bad. Don't do it. Uh, it's, it's just too dangerous with the number of diseases that could be dropped on it from, you know, from animals and such. So we want to have those beans and we want to make sure that they're roasted. And you generally, if you're going to buy them off the market, you can, you, you know, you're buying roasted ones. So now you grind those up and you can, you can grind them at home in a mortar and pestle. Uh, it's hard, but you can do it. And if you heat them up some to around uh, 105, you can, you can grind them up at home and it's lovely and the smell is fantastic. It's great. And it'll turn into a liquid and it turns into a liquid because it's about 50% cocoa butter and the other Part, so it's actually 45% cocoa butter, but we say 45 to 50% cocoa butter and the rest is cocoa powder. So that's what makes up a cocoa bean is cocoa butter and cocoa powder. When we mix it up and it turns into a liquid, liquid we call it chocolate liquor. There's nothing liquor about it. That's just what they call the liquid cocoa bean. So, so that's all it is. You have cocoa beans, you grind them up it's, and they're warm. So therefore the cocoa butter is warm and you grind it up. Now you have cocoa liquor or chocolate liquor. So generally when people are saying I'm making my own chocolate, they're saying, oh, I went and bought chocolate liquor or unsweetened chocolate. And I added my own sugar. I added my own milk. Absolutely. You created your own chocolate from chocolate liquor, okay? So now you have this chocolate or you went and just bought regular chocolate and you melted it out so you could coat things. If you just coat them with melted chocolate, now your cocoa butter isn't tempered to be at a temperature or to crystallize into this certain crystal that melts at body temperature. It can crystallize into six different types of crystals and five of them we don't want. Four of them melt, um, melt too fast. So that's when you barely pick it up and it's melting all over your fingers. You get in your mouth and it melts so fast. It's just like, okay, what just happened? Uh, that's, that's tempering that has those crystals that melt too quickly and just kind of create a mess of things. So it doesn't hold its shape. You touch it and it and it melts on your fingers. You have to keep in the people say, oh, I have to keep in the refrigerator. Well, if you have to keep in the refrigerator, then you don't have the right chocolate. And now it can hit, get hit with condensation. So now it starts tasting oddly grainy because the sugar, the sugars came out and you just kind of have an ugly mess. It also will go gray. 
and it goes gray because you're your cocoa butter wasn't stable. And so it slowly, as it cooled, because it's a fat, it's an oil, it just kept kind of coming to the surface because the other ingredients, the cocoa and the sugar and stuff are water-based in theory, right? So, so we have things, when you think back to our old chemistry days, water and oil don't mix. So if you have them mixed properly and they harden up right, you're okay. If you don't, and that fat has, has space to just keep staying liquid, it will slowly move itself to the surface. Then it'll harden. Then it looks gray. And so folks are like, wait, something horrible happened to my product. It looks like it has these spider webs all over it. I don't know what's going on. Well, you have untempered chocolate and it's blooming. Ah. So that is bloomed chocolate. So how do you temper it at home? So how you temper it at home, generally you're going to use a thermometer, but you don't necessarily have to. But you're going to do one of two things. There's a secret trick. But the first thing that you can do is that you heat your chocolate up to 120 and you let it stay there for about half hour to an hour. And what that does is it melts out all the crystals. And we say that that chocolate has crystal memory. So even though it looks liquid, there's some pieces in there that know what size they were and they're going to want to go back there unless we melt it out and make it forget it. So we melt it out. We leave it sitting warm for an hour. Now we take about a third of it and we pour it out on a table and we use spatulas to move it around and that's what you see sometimes on commercials. You see chefs doing it on big tables and they're scraping from one end to the other. They are seeding it and they're seeding it to get to the right uh, crystal size. And then they take that chocolate and add it back to the rest of the warm. They've, they've seeded it properly now and now they have tempered chocolate. Chefs are really good at knowing when that is. And what it actually is, if your chocolate's really shiny, it's not tempered properly. Once the chocolate can stand up on itself, so when you scrape it and then drizzle it in a design on top, it looks like they're just doing something, you know, funny and clever and chefy. Actually, they're testing it to see if it'll stay on top of itself, because if it does, then it's tempered. So they're looking for it to go dull because that's when the crystals are smaller. So they're looking for the crystals are small and and developed. So they're looking for it to go dull instead of being shiny. And then they're looking for it to stand up on itself. So that's method one. That's a fantastic way to do quite a bit of chocolate. And then you can take that and now you stir that into the rest of your chocolate. You want to mix that really, really well. And now you can use that to coat your product and you're going to have tempered product. The way most of us do it, which is much easier, is get some chocolate that you know is properly tempered. Just a nice chocolate bar that has a good shine that snaps. So chocolate should snap when you break it. If you have a chocolate bar that snaps, you take that, and when you melt out part of your product, you melt out all your chocolate, and then you take a cup, depending on how much chocolate you have, but you take some amount of chocolate and you chop it up that you know is a really good chocolate bar. You chop it up and you put that into your melted chocolate, and that acts as the seed. So you want to make sure your chocolate's warm enough to melt that, not so warm that it melts it out makes that chocolate bar forget that it had seed but now you so you so you cool down your chocolate mass till it's around 95 degrees now you add your chopped up chocolate you stir it like crazy until all that melts out and you now have seeded chocolate properly so that's the easiest way to do it at home is to melt out most of your chocolate but about 
five to 10% of it, uh, provided you have really good chocolate that, you know, has a nice, nice snap to it and is properly shiny and has a nice snap, you can use that to seed or get a different chocolate bar. You can, you know, melt out whatever you're doing, chocolate disc or whatever, but then get a nice chocolate bar to use as your seed. Now, have you seen that show on Netflix, The School of Chocolate? I have not. You have not? That's where they take chocolate and use it as a, I want to say an art medium, except everything they make has to taste good. So, Oh, lovely. Oh, you have to watch that because the guy is famous and I can't even remember his name. So hope he's not listening. And he has made horses, statues, life-size horses. He has made, he made this one father nature made him out of a tree but it, every single part of his is chocolate. I shouldn't say every part is chocolate. Every part is some kind of candy. 95% of it's chocolate. But he invites these contestants in, and they're not really not like some of those shows where you have to, it's not like survivor mode. You know, every time you make a mistake, you're out. He actually tells them what they did wrong and how to fix it while they're working on it. He'll, he'll even show them, no, you have to fix this because he wants to see what they accomplish, not how bad they mess up. Because most people, when I see shows, you want to see how badly a person fails. He's, he's not about that. He wants to see if everybody succeeds. But they will do some things like an entire chocolate piece is supposed to look like another food, like a head of broccoli, a taco, a hamburger. You know, he'll have them do that kind and then they also do sculpture stuff. But they are playing with chocolate the whole time. And they talk about tempering the whole time. And I'm watching going, I don't get it. I don't, you're not, I don't get it. I don't, what's that stirring? Why is stirring tempering? Why don't you just call it stirring the chocolate? And they, you should, it's the, actually the show is probably a couple years old. So if you find it on Netflix and you'll see all the things that they, they make. And they're phenomenal. And he also teaches them a lot about other confectionery products that you can pair with chocolate, meaning like he doesn't just take him, tell them to take jelly beans and cut them in chocolate and you have something. You know, he teaches them what kind of middle they can put in this to make it stay stable. And nothing on the project can be um, non-confectionery. Like if you were trying to make eagle's wings and you don't think the chocolate's going to hold it you got to figure out what to put in the center that's a candy that'll hold the wings out so it's it's a really it's really fascinating it makes you feel like you can't make chocolate at home but they they oh they do some amazing things but he teaches you the science because he teaches them about how you can't make chocolate do this or make could do that Sometimes it's over my head. I think it's maybe people for your your graduates would understand it. Well, it sounds lovely because, you know, honestly, a lot of those shows I don't watch because it usually is about, you know, watching people fail and pointing out how they're failing. It's like I just I just don't need to, you know, put that in there. It's like that's really what it should be about. So I love love the concept that you just explained because that's really what it should be about is learning and training and, and learning more stuff. So I will watch it because if that's what it's about, I love Love that vibe better than what so many of them are. Yeah, he does have to eliminate people to get to the bottom, but he sometimes he's so kind when he eliminates them. He says, 
I don't think that you've practiced this enough. I think that if you go and learn this, learn some more, and he gives them suggestions, then you could come back, you know, to a, a later show or you would, you know, where this isn't your forte. Like, you know, I'm not artistic. He would have to let me go just because it wouldn't look like what I thought it would, you know? So if people are really, really lacking the artistic part of it, he has to, because he did a, he did a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Every single part, life size, every single part was candy. And he does a lot of gold leaf on things. So he did all the metal pipes, all that with gold leaf or silver leaf or something. He did some metals and it was amazing. And he's not afraid to spray air, air spray things, you know, and make them different colors. So his trees can be green and eyeballs can be white. Yeah, you you have to, yeah, you need to watch that. So we've talked a lot about chocolate and I know that you're doing a lot, you're involved a lot with gummies now and especially for supplements and pharmaceutical. And so it's not just for kids anymore. It is not just for kids. Uh, What we really enjoy about working with the supplement industry, and I'll talk about the PharmaSum in a second too, is that it's uh, it's much more accessible. So instead of taking a big giant multivitamin, you can have two gummies. And now you feel like you've had a treat and you've gotten your vitamins. What we're seeing more now is the idea of what you want to feel. So um, we're seeing supplements for brain health, for focus, for immunity, for gut health, for calming. So just so you can relax more. And, and we're not talking, you know, the cannabis industry, which is there too, but there's other components. You know, lots of us don't have enough magnesium and things like that. And so there's things we can put in a gummy format that can be really difficult to take in a pill form if you have pill fatigue and just get tired of taking pills or even kids who may need some things just to help calm down at night without wanting to be on medication there's things that like like magnesium, other pieces that just if we have enough in our body, it helps us calm down and and relax. So having these available in a format that's that's more accessible is really what about what what it is about the gummy supplement that we really like to work on. So we're purposely making sure that we're not making them so attractive to kids that they want to eat them like candy. Now, we do try to make them taste taste good, but we're not looking at them, you know, trying to make Starburst flavors or anything like that. We're using more adult flavors, more adult colors. So it's more blackberries and mixed berries-ish, things like that, where it's not just a monotone cherry flavor like in a jelly bean, which would attract kids and, you know, very, really bright, exciting flavors and colors in the jar. We're using darker ones, more gemstones, things that are more attracted to adults, so that they're much less likely for a child to get them and, and want to overeat them. We also make sure that, you know, they're packaged as supplements and packaging that has child-resistant caps and such. So all those pieces are in play so that they are more adult-based. So we did an internal study and one of our managers went out to the stores and she went to five different stores and took pictures of supplement gummy 
areas and came back and analyzed those, just put them up on a big screen and started counting. Over 70% of them were geared for adults based off the color, the flavors, the what was in them. So where we thought, okay, gummy supplements are really designed for kids, you know, so that they don't have to take this vitamin pill. Uh, the reality is they're designed for adults. And we like that because just as there's so many kids, even coming up in the teenage years that can't or won't swallow pills, once you hit 70 years of age, your ability to swallow changes. So as we get older and we need more of those vitamins, we need to get proteins in different ways, whatever that is, to swallow pills becomes much, much more difficult. So having capabilities, having other methods of delivery is really key if we want to be able to make sure that people can get some of these vitamins and minerals and supplements that, that they want to take. So if it's lutein for eyes, if it's, you know, chlorine for brain health, different pieces like that, these are ways to, again, supplement. This isn't about replacing your diet. This is about supplementation in areas that, that need it. So many of in the U.S. don't get enough vitamin D. So do you take a vitamin D pill? Do you, you know, try to drink more milk that might have it in there? What do you do? Well, you know, we can make vitamin D gummies that also have other things in them and such that let you have that and you're more likely to take it and, and have that in your body because you got to have a gummy. So there's value in it for that. People think that they're treating themselves and they are by having something that tastes good. It gives them an uh, opportunity to say yes to gummies or to candy uh, and say, yeah, but I, I get I'm only supposed to eat three of them because that's what's in a serving. So instead of mindlessly munching, it gives them the opportunity to eat gummies while still controlling how much sugar and stuff they're intaking. So we love that industry and what we're doing there. We love all the new ingredients that are coming out throughout the world that have real value. We're looking at things like neem oil from India, from the neem trees. They've been used for not even centuries, millennia, thousands of years because of their antibacterial properties. So they'll take the branches off of neem trees and that's and chew on them, the small twigs and such. And that's how, how they clean their teeth. And they have so many antibacterial properties that it works. So now you're starting to see neem toothpaste and other things. Uh, but neem oil is really good on skin. Uh, again, antibacterial has really good uh, nutritional properties in your skin. You can you do uh, neem drinks and teas and such, but it's got a very distinct flavor that the U.S. isn't going to like much. So making sure that we can mask it some or blend it with things so you don't get those bitter, harsh, dirty notes and can actually, it's, it's such a unique smell that it's kind of indescribable. It's very distinct. And there's other things like that. So how can we bring some of those into our value system into, you know, what, what we can do in a way that isn't just using all chemicals, uh, but using some natural methods to do this stuff. Can we take that? Can we get Manuka honey? Uh, and what is, what does neem smell like? You have to get it. Is it a dirty smell? So there, it's, it's dirty and almost anesthetic smell, like almost like a um, medicinal smell. It almost smells like something that's going to numb, numb you, like, but not in a menthol sort of way. A Novocaine kind of smell. Kind of like Novocaine-ish. Yeah. Something like that. 
so how do you mask that? How do you, you know, if you want to start drinking that as a tea because it has value, how do you do that? Right. There's there's other things that are like antiviral and stuff that have been used for thousands of years and have proven like it's medically proven that some of this stuff works well for antiviral. Uh, and I don't remember which one that is. It's, it's, uh, but in any case, there's antiviral materials out there, antibiotic materials that are out there that that are natural that you can have to just help build immunity. And. And they don't taste good especially to our taste because we didn't grow up with them. So what do we do? So what do we do? We see if we can get some of those into a gummy format where we can add enough flavor masking on top of that to get them to, we always say that our goal is Flintstone vitamins. So does anybody go, oh, I want to eat a bottle of Flintstone? Nope. But will you take one because it's good for you? And you know what? Sure. Yeah, they're, they're tolerable enough to, to have on a day. Like as kids, we're like, sure, okay, we'll take that. Yeah, or baby aspirin, the orange baby aspirin. Baby aspirin, exactly, yes. So if we use those as goals, now we have something where we're not trying to make it taste like a Jelly Belly, and we shouldn't, honestly, uh, because we don't want people to think, oh, I really want to eat, you know, 20 of these or 50 of these. We want to make sure that that they're within a controlled amount, but if we hold it at baby aspirin, Flintstone vitamins, now folks are like completely tolerable, fully happy to take it. They'll stay on the regimen that that may, they, that may help them feel better while, while still having that opportunity to enjoy a gummy, at least sort of. And that's where we pull into the pharma side. And this one is very close to my, my heart and my passion is that there are so many children that die simply because they can't take the pill regimen. When we look throughout the world, tuberculosis, about 20% of the world population has tuberculosis. It's a high number. So if you haven't gotten a tuberculosis booster, let me tell you, go get one. Tell all your listeners, go to the doctor. Some medical practice will say, oh no, you're not supposed to have one unless you work in a healthcare facility. I'm telling you, I've talked to the researchers that are working on tuberculosis. They're saying there are enough flights coming in every day from very hot spots around the world that the boosters are required because what you got in elementary school is not covering you anymore. So get a tuberculosis booster. Make sure you do that. I pass it along to people I sit next to on airplanes and everything else. Get your tuberculosis booster because it can sit dormant for decades. And then it's going to come out. It'll produce itself when you get a cold or flu or something like that, then it will activate itself. They're expecting with COVID, and so they're already seeing it. I've started seeing some reports, but when COVID first started and I was talking to some of these researchers, they said, we expect at least 13 million people in the U.S. to have tuberculosis because COVID's going to trigger it. And they don't know when it, and they don't know when it'll trigger it. You don't know when it's going to trigger it, but if you get COVID, so it's when, you know, it's usually soon after you get some kind of illness that it'll trigger. And again, it can be dormant in your body for 20 years, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever. So now you're already sick, you trigger tuberculosis, you are in serious critical condition. So what does the booster do? If, the, if you get the booster... It kills what's dormant? It actually stops it from being able to, to produce, as far as I understand. I'm not sure, so I don't want to go on the medical side because I, I don't want to go there. That's okay. 
but getting your booster can help so that if you don't get it or if you come in contact with it, you don't, it won't invade your body. You can't get it. But the intent is, you know, at whatever percentage it, it protects that. But so now if we go back and look at kids with tuberculosis, over 200,000 children die every year from tuberculosis. Now, this is a disease that we do have medication for, but it's a pretty painful regimen. So it's a series of three antibiotics that you have to take for what is now six months, which is brilliant because it used to be over 18 months you had to take it. So now for six months, you take these three antibiotics. It's a tough regimen, but tuberculosis is a tough disease. However, when you're a child and you already hurt and your lungs hurt and you feel sick, taking pills simply doesn't happen. And when it doesn't happen, now it goes into resistant tuberculosis. So we have these different types of tuberculosis, right? So we have it fully active, we have it dormant, and we have it resistant. Resistant tuberculosis, even with, even with treatment, is 50% fatal. So we don't want this to go into resistant tuberculosis. If it does, you are now on a regimen of over 40 pills plus a shot every day for 18 months. And maybe, maybe you'll survive. So it's critical that we have that we have this first level of tuberculosis with the with the drugs available for kids in a format that they can and willingly will take. So they've got to take these three antibiotics. How can we do that? Well, we've gotten them into a gummy format. Again, we base it off of being close to Flintstone vitamin. So we say it as taking the scary out of the cure. So we're not working on the medications. They already exist. I'm not talking, you know, we don't look at the drugs at all. We're looking at, can we stay, get them so that they're in a stable form and hold up in this system that is chewable, that is flavored, that, that can resist heat because there's hot spots of tuberculosis in areas like sub-Sahara uh, desert in Africa to places in India Cambodia, Thailand, and Siberia. So when we look at these areas of hot spots, we have to also take into consideration temperatures or where they're going to be sent to, also how they're going to get transported and the cultural significances in those areas. So when we look at it, we can't do gelatin at all because we have many areas that are Muslim-based and Jewish based, we can't have any pork type products. And we have Hindu, so we can't have beef based products. So we really need to make sure that these are designed in a way that are respectful to cultural, to, you know, to cultures that, that have strong beliefs about these things and won't take medications if they're in there. So we need to be really careful about that and make sure that they're stable in these temperatures. And in some areas you're getting them out to villages that might take hours or days to get to, that they wanna make sure that, that these are stable that way. And if we can get them into gummies in a format that um, just elders in a village or school teachers or such could distribute versus having it have to be a healthcare person giving a syringe or something uh, or handing out pills, now we have the potential to, to make life-saving change. So the more we can use things like gummy bases 
chew type bases. So whether that's pectin, carrageenan, agar, these are all plant-based things as gelling agents. If we can use these as formats to get materials in that A, either can prevent and help with immunity and stuff like that. So back to the supplement, let's prevent it if all possible. And then once it exists, can we get the antibiotics in there that can be taken in a way that isn't such a struggle? And when we look at teenagers in some of these areas, especially in countries of Africa and other areas as well, tuberculosis is seen as a social economic disease. So if a child of a teenager has tuberculosis, they're considered poor. They, you know, their family must be poor uh, and they can get teased and bullied relentlessly for it. So if they have to go get a drink of water to take pills at certain times of the day, that's a problem. If you can discreetly pull a gummy out of your pocket that requires no fresh water, you just pull it out, pop it in your mouth. Nobody notices as far as they know you're putting in a piece of gum. Now we again have have teenagers that will stay on the regimen as they're supposed to. And in areas of the world where you don't have clean drinking water or you're walking for a mile to get it, again, by having a gummy format, you no longer need fresh water or drinking water to take a pill with. So much better, so much opportunity to get the medications you need in a format that works for your culture, for your space, for your lifestyle, and in a way that is discreet and maintains your dignity. If you're teenagers and you know preteens and you just can't have your friends sing it because there's social economic issues, all these things can be affected by simply changing the format in which we deliver uh, either the drugs or the supplements. And that is a piece that I feel is really key for what we do at Victus Airs uh, and that we train folks on because we know we're not the only ones that, you know, are going to be needing to do this. So we at the Institute of Confectionery Excellence, we want folks to understand how to make these products and how to use them as delivery systems so that we can really deliver not just for, ooh, this is fun, but so that we can deliver in a way that doesn't require water, that can be discreet that can take the scary out of the cure and various other properties that that just may possibly work better simply because there's some products that may, we don't know, but we know with things like calcium that if you have it at a certain particle size, it's more bioavailable. So could some things be more bioavailable simply by not being in pill form? Maybe. We don't know. We're not going there. Right now we're looking at it for can we get it in there? Is it stable? Uh, and can we, you know, do we have the test to prove that material is staying in there? And then can we mask it in a way that that takes it to a level of, as you said, baby aspirin or Flintstone vitamins, something that's palatable, even though it's not necessarily delightful. Uh, we'll leave the delightful for candy. And then for these pieces, we use that type of delivery system so that it takes the scary out of the cure. So this sounds wonderful. Are the companies embracing it? Are they doing it? So right now we're still in the development phases of these with the one that we've been working on for, tu for tuberculosis. It was based on a grant from NIH, from National Institute of Health, and we were working with a biotech company on it. Uh, 
NIH had called them and said, you do really complicated mechanical things for healthcare uh, and surgeries and such. Can you, can you come up with a gummy that does this? And they went, of course we can. It's a gummy. We can do that. And then they tried. Uh, and then they panicked. Uh, because they figured out that making gummies is way harder than they ever thought possible. And also there's shelf lives and all these other things you have to do and all these, you know, rules around food things that and ingesting that they didn't have to do with, with some of the things they were developing. So they found us. Uh, and so then we partnered with them to create this. And they have the analytical equipment, the HPLCs, all that kind of stuff to test for the active, make sure it's still in there. So the first one is still at NIH. It's under shelf life. It's been under there for about a year now uh, and has been showing some good results with the active staying in the format that they need. Uh, and now we're finishing up on a second trial that would help treat uh, resistant tuberculosis. So what we're seeing is that there's some interest, there's questions about how would this really work? How do you make this in pharmaceutical standards? Uh, you're not going to be able to make it, you know, nearly as fast. It's far more expensive than pills. So what do you do about that? We're really looking at it going, okay, that's, that's fine. I don't need all the big companies, you know, coming towards us. We're looking at it going, you know, do we make it? You know, so, so we're looking at, can we put in a small facility to make some of these drugs? Anything that, that is a childhood disease is considered a rare disease because children just don't get that kind of sick nearly as often as adults do. So anything that a childhood conditions lie on there are considered rare diseases. There's some diseases that require medication that they call orphan drugs because there's so few um, doses that are needed. There's some diseases that you need all of 10,000 doses per year for the entire world. So big companies, pharmaceutical companies don't want to make these. They don't want anything to do with it. They can't possibly make money on that, right? So can smaller companies, we're hoping that part of what we're doing can help develop new, new companies. Uh, can smaller companies come in and say, we want to make small doses of this? And, and we're looking at it ourselves saying, can we put in equipment uh, that would allow us to do some of these orphan drugs in a gummy format that would allow folks to survive and do well because they're getting the medications they need in a format that they can that they can take. So not lots of folks jumping on it. We don't need lots of folks jumping. We we need is the right ones to get the value of this and really put the focus on does this uh, transfer properly? Are we getting the right pieces around it? Let's make sure that that all those pieces are working, that that medication in there is going to be effective. And so those are the ones we're talking to. It's more biotech companies that are really looking at what's next, how can we do better that we're working with right now to do all the research. Okay. Now, you brought it, I'm going to take you back to candy again. So how do you make a gummy? I have no idea. My husband's, one of his favorite candies are those orange slices covered in the sugar. Those are actually really hard, uh, honestly. So, so that you start with some cornstarch uh, and you get that to hydrate in water and then you cook it. So kind of like making gravy where it goes really cloudy and thick and then it thins out because the starch molecules have expanded. So they grew fat with the water and then they kind of blew up. And that's when the starch actually comes out and can can make gravy. So first, as they're getting thicker and thicker, you see it in, you know, if you're making gravy at home and you're using beef juices or whatever, it expands. You add some cornstarch to it. It gets really thick and um, almost whitish in color. 
And then those starch molecules break open and it all calms down and you have a nice gravy that's thickened, but not that super thick and gummy. Uh, and that's what cornstarch does. So when we're looking at those orange slices, that's what they're doing. They're taking this, this cornstarch and cooking it so that it's hydrated. And then they cook it so that the cornstarch molecules come out of their cell. And then you're mixing that with corn syrup and sugar and flavors and acid and color and such. And then you deposit that in something called a starch mogul, which is a different corn starch. It's actually similar, but now you have a little bit of oil in it. So it'll take an impression. And that corn starch with a tiny bit of, of oil in it will make an impression that you can shape, use whatever kind of shape you want. So you can make a shape that's a flower or a bat or an orange slice or whatever. And you make that impression. And now you take this hot gummy goo, which is this hydrated and gelatinized cornstarch with sugar and some water and some corn syrup and flavor and acid and color. And you deposit it into these imprints into cornstarch. Now you take those and you put them into a low heat oven for three days. Three days. Generally 72 hours, yes. So it can range depending on the size. So something like jelly bean centers that are small might be 24 hours. Bigger pieces are probably going to be about three days, about 72 hours. You're going to have this in this high airflow oven. So if you have a convection oven at, at home where you, know, you turn it on, you hear all the air flowing around loud, that's a convection oven. That's what these are only. They're the size of rooms. So these might be... 40 feet long by uh, by 20 feet wide, something like that. Or they might be eight feet wide, whatever. So eight feet by 40 feet, something like that. So you're putting pallets of these trays that are filled with cornstarch that has a little bit of oil in it that had an input uh, pressed into it that then is filled with this gummy goo. And now it's stacked on other trays like that. And it's put into one of these curing rooms ovens, sometimes it's called stoving, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, so then it goes into there for three days, it comes out, the starch tray gets dumped out, that starch bed can be reused, the candy falls out, it goes through a tumbler that knocks off as much starch as possible, it also blows some air on it, trying to get that starch to, to come off. Then it goes down a conveyor belt to get hit with some dry steam, so that just the edge of it melts. And then it goes into another tumbler that has the sugar crystals in it so that the sugar crystals stick to the outside of it. And when you come out the other side, you let it sit again for a little while for a number of hours to make sure that everything is set up properly. And now you can package it. Wow. I don't recommend this at home. Who comes up with these ideas? And I like, do you know the history of some of these candies? Like when was panning invented? When were gummies invented? So panning, we know. So most of the stuff actually came from apothecary uh, and medications way back. So panning, we know back in 1600s was the first time it was documented and you did it over open flame and it was hard sugar shell. And the chefs did it for kings and they were sugar shelling things like fennel seeds for digestion. So those are the earliest recorded uh, cases of panning. With gummies, I'm not really sure. I mean, we know when like, you know, that Haribo and stuff came out early 70s, 80s, something like that is when they really hit the market big. Uh, but long before that, you were doing 
uh, pectin fruits, you know, at a chef level. So candy stores were doing lots of different types of gummy things. And if you think about how candy came about as a whole, before there were highways that crossed the U.S., which came with World War II, right? So all our interstates, that, that had to do with the wars. Before that, candy was very, very local. So you had lots and lots and lots of candy shops because you could really only buy them in your general area. There wasn't, you know, consistent refrigeration for, for candy-based things in any case. Cars certainly didn't have air conditioning. So you're looking at candy that's uber local. Once interstates came in, that's when suddenly a Hershey bar could get to California. So in the, that's really where, where there's a major change in candy. So candy's been around for, you know, for as long as we know, right? Like sugar cane was chewed on for just to have something sweet and enjoyable. So, you know, there's histories of chocolate that we found back in bowls from, I don't remember the, the, the oldest ones that exist in Mesoamerica. So, so there's history around what some of these things were. But when they, there's a difference between who is making them in these small spaces where you took fruit and you made it kind of in a jelly and then you cooked it even more and you made something that was, was a gummy uh, or a precursor to a gummy versus when it became really big in the, like in the eighties where it became kind of a world phenomenon. And then, you know, and chocolate started as a liquid uh, drink that kings and such would drink at first, the only ones that were allowed to. And they mixed it with a bunch of spices and chilies and such. It was a very savory thing. It was not sweet. Eventually, they started mixing it with honey. Uh, But cocoa beans were considered currency. So you traded them uh, as, as coins. So there's a lot of really interesting history that comes with candy. Sugar has its own history that's that's pretty fascinating to read about. So there are books. Beth Kimmerly has written the history of some different candy companies that she does a great job. So there are histories of candy books and stuff like that that are really fun to read. Uh, and candy companies, because so many are family-based. Uh, even today, there's you know companies that are five generations in. Uh, when you look at... A, Jelly Belly and some ones throughout, you know, throughout the U.S. And, and of course, all over in Europe, you have these family companies that have been around for generations and generations that just that information is passed down to. What's interesting is that unlike a lot of other industries, somewhere along the line, there were some very clever people who decided that candy shouldn't just be an art form. It shouldn't just be, oh, the gentleman knows that it's done or the candy maker knows when it's done when he dips his arm in in ice cold water then plunges it into boiling candy goo then plunges it back into the heart into the cold water uh, and feels it to see if it's the right texture that's where we got you know soft boil hard boil that yeah this wasn't like you know take a spoon and drip it these were guys that reached their hand into this stuff lots of them had very bad burns uh, but if you did it with cold enough water and you did it fast enough, you could do this. Uh, and that's how they would test where if it was done. So long before there were thermometers, this is what was done. And then somebody came along and said, I think we can find a better way to test for this. Or let's see if we can make it so we can teach somebody else. And that's when they started using thermometers. So everything was based off of 
these very, very skilled workers that understood it from that sensory standpoint that we then applied the science to. So we looked at it and went, okay, how can we see what they're seeing using a tool? So you have these folks that were really skilled and some still are much, much rarer these days, but that that's how they do it. You know, our grandmothers knew how to make jelly and knew the jelly was right by how it stuck to the back of a spoon. She didn't use a thermometer either. Could she make perfect jelly? Yep. If somebody who wasn't trained by grandma tried to do that and then they put wax on top of it, you just created an anaerobic situation and now you could get botulism and you could kill your whole family. So knowing how to do this properly is really critical. And and they were absolutely skilled. Like give big, big props to your grandmothers because the reason you exist today is because they were really really good at this yes we in our family we make jelly with the wax and i do not and my mother says why don't you and i said because i don't know how grandma did it so i process it in a canning processor so nobody dies exactly right and nobody died on grandma's because she knew what she was doing she didn't necessarily know why it was doing it other than but she did know why in that it stopped it stopped things from growing in it that that could get you sick. So she was very clear in how she sanitized things. She was very clear on on how she cooked up and what she was watching for. So then scientists came through and said, I wonder if we can test this by temperature and if it's related. And thankfully it was. So we can tell what the solids are based on temperatures. Again, grandma didn't travel across the U.S. So the temperature she used or the way she used it worked for her. Uh, but now you have a company that one's in Chicago and one's in Florida and one's in the high desert of California. They can't use the same methods because those three plants have to have to create things differently. So that's where we had to come up with things like solids and things that were a little less dependent on on your atmosphere, although there's still a lot of formulas, especially when you're chocolate coating things or compound coating things, especially, you know, chocolate dip cookies and stuff. Some of the old style ones that we had, they had a summer formula and a winter formula. So that, that, that coating base was a bit harder during the summer. So it didn't uh, go soft in the grocery stores and it was a little bit softer in the winter so that it didn't break your teeth or taste too much like wax. Oh, I make caramel corn for Christmas. And people have asked me to make it for weddings in the summer. And my answer is I can't. Right. You can't. And they, they say, why can't you? And I said, all I know is my furnace isn't on and I can't. I said, I have to make it in the winter. That's it. So I don't know the science behind it, but I know I tried it once and it was very chewy. It didn't hit the it's humidity. Yeah. It didn't hit the breaking point. Didn't crack. Correct. And that was the humidity in your room. Yeah. So I said, I can't do it. Sorry. Exactly. It also keeps me out of doing work for other people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I don't have to make 40 bags. Yes. And, and the reality is, even if you set yourself up well, like you put, you know, something in a small room and you put a dehumidifier in the room, there's things you could do so that you could make it. It wouldn't last long. By the time you bagged it and took it somewhere, it would also turn soft and chewy. But what I don't understand is I go to all these, you know, go to the beach and all these people are making caramel corn on the boardwalk and you're buying it hot and it's wonderful. And I, like I said, I don't want to figure really it out. I just know that when I make it, 
I put it on trays and I take it in my dining room where I've turned the heat off and it's cold room and it comes out beautiful. Do it in the summer, it comes out terrible. But those people at the boardwalk, they seem to have figured it out. I just haven't. Well, they actually have. Yes, there's there's ways you can do it. Um, yes, there are ways you can do it in small batch like that to do it fresh. Uh, but it really, I, I wouldn't do it if I were you either. No. <laughs> there's still a chance it can, it can mess it up. So Now, you have 30 years of experience in all this confectionery. You want to take us through your career and tell us whatever you want about each step of it, a lot or a little bit. Just take us start at the beginning and bring us up to date. Sure. So uh, I have a degree in food science from Purdue University. I did a summer internship at M&M Mars, which I loved and realized at that point on I was going to stay in candy, which I did. So when I finished up my degree at Mars, I went to the uh, Dove Ice Cream Factory, where we worked with a lot of caramel and chocolate and fun things like that, toffee pieces, all sorts of cool stuff. From there, uh, working in production there and working on shift work was excellent as a starting job. I don't recommend it for everyone because, you know, doing shift work is really taxing on the body. But what you learn at three o'clock in the morning when there's no engineers, there's no managers aside from, you know, one overseeing the whole thing. So it's you and some maintenance folks trying to solve stuff. You will learn a lot about manufacturing. So from there, I went out to Pennsylvania to Just Born, which is Mike and Ike's and Hot Tamales and Marshmallow Peeps. And I did product development and process development out there. So doing some things to help make the plant more efficient and then also developing new items. Then I came back to Chicago because it was when 9-11 happened. And I realized that as much as I loved Just Born and I loved working at Just Born, that really my life was about being in the Midwest, being closer to family decided I didn't want to be in small town Indiana, but I could be an hour away in Chicago and I could have a happy life. I could have the lifestyle that I love, which is city life with friends and things to do and places to go. And I love that while also being close enough that I can get to family, whether it's for holidays or because my parents need me, whatever that case may be. So moved back, went into sales uh, for panning. And that's really, you know, I was doing panning at Jelly Beans for Just Born, but really going to Mantros Hauser is when I learned all about chocolate panning and doing more hard sugar shell panning, things like that. And I got to travel around the world. I got to go to South America and all over Europe and Canada and such. So it's not all over the world, but enough areas that I really enjoyed that. But I also realized that sales was leaving me in a place where I wasn't using my technical chops as much as I wanted to. So I returned to R&D at a flavor house, then went from there and moved to uh, QA products, which does sprinkles. So lots of panning, lots of fun innovation things for new holidays, new ideas around things, lots of fun. And then carry, ingred carry ingredients bought us. So they bought us. I became director of a number of different groups. So then we did do sugar shelling like M&M types. So we call those chocolate lentils. So we did uh, chocolate lentils. We did different toffee pieces. It was, it was good fun in that there were four different plants that made candy. So my team was responsible for uh, putting new products in, commercializing them, scaling them up into these plants. So we developed them in our lab and then we took them out to the plants to have them made at 
the scale or at the production that was necessary for, for the client company. And from there, uh, I realized that it was, it was getting time to start my own thing. And I knew I had wanted to do that for a number of years. So I left Carrie and went to the Swiss Colony, which makes gourmet cakes and cookies through mail order. And they do a lot of chocolate because they take their cakes and all that. And the, re the reason it's mail order is that if you coat it with enough chocolate, that cake doesn't smash. So there's lots of stuff that's coated with chocolate. Uh, so we had five and rovers there and chocolate molding lines and such. So it was lovely because the, the bakery. So I learned a lot more about processing baked goods there. Uh, and then after three years there, I thought, yep, it's, it's time. It's time to start my own, my own business, be more available to lots of companies of different sizes, including those smaller ones that need support and are just never going to get it at the level that I can provide with 30 some years of experience. Um, but they're not going to be able to afford that on a full time basis. And I wanted to just make it more democratic, right? Build a democracy into, into who has access to a lot of experience and capability. And I wanted some smaller companies to have the, the capability that big companies could hire into. It's like, let's get these small companies having that kind of stability because they know their products are stable and safe and such. So that's what I went into it for. And it's been over nine years now, and we love doing it. We love that we started the classes, and we are looking to uh, start some really small productions so that some of those companies can have their first orders made with us before they find a co-manufacturer or try to invest in the equipment themselves. So we're working on production, uh, and that should be coming early next year. And we have the classes so we can make sure people are taught correctly. And then we do our product development, which we've been doing. So I have a, a team of scientists that are smart, capable people who all have production experience. If not in candy, then certainly in food. And then they've learned the other stuff. So that's what we're doing. Uh, and we're very excited about that. Yeah. There is a food company, and I don't know if I should mention who it is. So I'll just describe it to you. They started out similar... It's similar to where you're ending up. They take little companies that are not making it or, you know, struggling, have great ideas or straight out have a great idea and don't know how to make it. And they have their, their small manufacturing and these people get to utilize everything that they have, meaning their QA department, their marketing, their sales their um, everything, R&D, and they get to make their product. And if it starts to take off, they get to move to be their own company, but they don't cut ties until they're ready. So if they're ready to cut ties on QA, have their own QA department, they can do that, but still use all the other departments. And they've come up with four or five food companies now that they just they wean them off instead of being like a private equity company who gives you money. If you don't make money for them, they drop, dump you or sell you. But they leave you to figure it all out. These guys are saying, we've already figured it out, so we'll show you how to do it. And then you can, when you're up and running, so the person who came up with the idea, who may be the founder of the company, still gets to be president of the company. Nobody's running them. They get to run it. They get a lot of guidance. So if they really are going to do something that's not smart, they'll pull them aside and say, you know, that's not how you do it. But 
you know nothing about transportation, so we'll teach you. You know nothing about, you know, branding, so we'll teach you. You know nothing about, you know, picking a co-manufacturer, we'll show you. You know, so you can use ours, because there's this very small capability right now. But you can m- move on. If you hit the big time, you can move on to other facilities. So they're kind of, you know, it's it's all about leverage. They're, you know, why should each one of these companies have their own QA department? Why should all these companies have their own sales department? All the regulatory, you know, regulatory affairs. And they they use them until they get too big and get their own. So is that kind of something that you're going to probably head towards that way? Help these people? You know, I, I don't know that we are because I feel like our focus is probably going to go more towards the supplement pharma more research side of some of this and can we work with companies in our small production facility to create stuff for shelf life studies for rare drugs for supplement spaces so potentially in that supplement space we would do co-manufacturing and then support going on potentially work into marketing some of that but i don't know that that will go full out into all of that because we're not looking that's really an incubator space and we're not looking to be an incubator it's kind of like that, but they've moved it to a higher level. I don't. It's really hard to describe. Can I ask you one last question before we'll use this as a wrap up? Halloween's coming, you know, so all that candy's gonna be out there. What is your favorite candy, or do you have like a top three? My favorite candy is when we make our own chocolate covered malt balls. Really, they are delightful, and we can get malt ball centers and we coat them with really fabulous chocolate, but not too much. And we, we enjoy those. And that's my very favorite thing. Wonderful. Well, Michelle, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you for helping us not only with the candy industry, the confectionery industry, but helping us, maybe some of those people at home saying, yeah, I shouldn't make that candy, but be happy that they're continuing to buy it and supporting the candy industry. <laughs> exactly that. Yes. Candy industry supports a lot of jobs in the U.S. So so it's it's okay to buy it because there's a lot of folks working in the industry that appreciate appreciate that they have job security because folks enjoy candy. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Maureen. You have a good day. All right. You too.